Hello and welcome to Living the Queen Life, a podcast by Queen of My Own Universe. I'm your host, Margaret Foley, and I am the Queen of My Own Universe. Living the Queen Life podcast showcases the stories of ordinary women doing extraordinary things and brings to you advice, helpful tools and tips and inspiration about how you too can live a life that you love. I believe that every woman is the queen of her own universe, and I'm on a mission to empower you to believe in and lean into your full potential. Think, feel, and live like a queen. There's no one as special as you. Welcome to another episode of Living the Queen Life. Today, my guest is Mary Beth O'Connor. Mary Beth has been clean and sober since 1994. She is also in recovery from abuse, trauma, self-harm, PTSD, and anxiety. Her history and her incredible recovery are chronicled in her recently published memoir, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. In this episode, Mary Beth talks honestly and openly about the trauma of her childhood which led her to a drug addiction by her early teenage years. Her adult years marred by addiction, her experiences of recovery and sobriety, and the inspiring story of how she transformed herself from junkie to judge, graduating from Berkeley Law and in 2014 being appointed a US Federal Administrative Law Judge. Mary Beth is a director, secretary and founding investor for the She Recovers Foundation. She's also a director for Life Ring Secular Recovery and now uses her own powerful life story to help other women reclaim their lives too. So Mary Beth, welcome to the Living the Queen Life podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I am so excited to, to have you and I'm so excited for our listeners to hear your story um, and, and what you've got to share with them today. I met, for the listeners, I, I've met Mary Beth through the She Is Me conference, which was on just a couple of days ago, which was just phenomenal. It was 50 something women from all over the world over a period of five days sharing their story, helping other women, empowering other women. And Mary Beth was one of those incredible speakers. And I'm so, so honored that you are joining us today. On living the queen life to tell your story to our queen community so mary beth maybe maybe tell us the story and i mean in your own words um go back to where you would like to and we are all ears honey to hear your story sure i mean so part of it is my, uh, this title of my book which is from junkie to judge one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction But to start at the really beginning, this story really is child abuse led to childhood addiction. So I grew up with a mother who wasn't really bonded to me at all, which was problematic. And she could be violent. You know, she could be violent. She liked to hit you with the nearest close object. Mm -hmm. But the bigger problem arose when she married my stepfather when I was nine years old. And things got much, much worse. And he was violent to her. He was, you know, verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually violent to me. And for me, at 12 years old, I picked up my first drug, which was alcohol, 
And it seemed like a really good idea at the time because it relieved some of my stress and tension from living in that environment where I never knew, you know, whether it was going to be a fine day or some mm. little minor irritant was going to lead to an assault. Um, and, you know, I felt sort of lighter and happier. And so it seemed like it was a good a good option for a while. And mm -hmm. I, I abused alcohol from the beginning. I was never a casual user um, <laughs> at all. Um, and then I really fasted. I moved on to pot, pills, acid until I found my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine when I was 16. And I was shooting meth at 17 years old and in full bore addiction when I graduated from high school. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. All right. Let's, let's unpack that a little if, if we can. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the first question that's popping to my head is how the hell did you graduate high school while doing all of that? And where were the, if not, you know, I'm understanding, you know, you've got some stuff going on at home, but where was the school? Where were teachers? Where was anybody else while you were going through all of this? Well, I mean, school had always actually been the one place where I got positive attention. I was just good at school. And so it was relatively easy for me. And I was able to handle it pretty well until around the mid to late part of my senior year when I was so deep in the meth that I was just missing a lot of school days. But by then I had already been accepted into college and I just told the teachers I was having problems at home. And so they would let me make up the work and take the test late. So that's really how I managed the academic side of it. Um, but as far as school noticing, there wasn't, nobody noticed. I mean, no one noticed the, the, I was really in a depression. I think it would have been at least there were signs if anyone would have been paying close attention. But I think partly because I excelled at school, no one mm. thought that there was a problem. You know, it just seemed like I was doing so well. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, great that you graduated high school and great that you were accepted into the colleges. But, like, tell us the next bit then because I'm assuming that it wasn't just, oh, I, you know, I'm just going to snap out of this. I'm 17. I mean, that's so young. We can't even, we'll, we'll go there later because I'm sure there's more about what toll that took on your body as well. Yeah, so I went to college. I went to Berkeley in California. I grew up in New Jersey, so it was a big move for me all the way across the country. Mm -hmm. And I did better with my drug use for the first three and a half years. I didn't use meth very much. I mostly used on weekends to excess, but mostly on the mm -hmm. weekends. Occasionally, I I'd do a run of five or six days, but still, it was much better than it had been the last two years of high school. But... I had a really um, life-threatening multi-assailant rape in college, and then I moved in with an abusive boyfriend, and I just could not hang on anymore. My reserves were depleted. Mm, and gosh. so in the um, middle of my senior year of college, I started using meth again. And I, used, I, I was in that meth addiction for the next 10 years. Wow, goodness. And so there was some patterns of trauma that just played themselves out in those college years for you as well that had been... I guess, mirrored from your childhood? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of, that was actually the second multi-assailant rape that I had. And I had others, you know, sexual assaults of various degrees as a teenager. And so it was a pattern on top of the, you know, the violence at home, which is partly why the abusive boyfriend's behavior didn't seem that mm -hmm. extreme to me because, you know, I grew up with it. I, I understood it. Um, it's, 
not uncommon for people who grow up with an abusive male in the house to mm. partner up with an abusive male. And so it was, it was like, I thought I was leaving New Jersey and going to California for a fresh start. And then basically I recreated my, my life at home with the abuser and I had the sexual mm. traumas. And so I turned to the same solution, which was drugs. Um, and that was just what I knew. And that's all I knew how to do. And what were you saying to yourself at this time as, as you're experiencing all of this and then making, you know, I want to say you're making those choices, but I understand that addiction, you get to the point where it's not a choice anymore. But what was that dialogue in your head that you were saying to yourself? When I got access to meth again um, in the middle of my senior year, it was it was like coming home. I mean, I remember doing it the first time when I hadn't done it probably for six months. And it was just like, oh, my friend, my buddy, oh. I remember you. It was like the, my brain just got very excited. My body just reacted to it. And it was like, why, what, what, why have I not been doing you? all along. Why did I ever stop? This was my thought. So it's the opposite of what someone without that history or without that inclination would think. To me, it was, I don't understand why I ever stopped doing this. <laughs> this is great. Wow. wow. I mean, I feel that way about sugar, um, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's a different, that's a different addiction all over again. All right. So now we're, we're at Berkeley in California. We're far away from our family on the other side of the country. We're going through college we're doing really well at college. How are we going? Yes, I, I got, yeah. yes, yes, I got good grades at college. And I even were, I was working part time throughout college. My family doesn't have money. You know, I grew up in a working class family. And so I did do well on my grades in college, even though I was working. So I was pretty diligent until that middle of my seat, even with the rape. When I had that, um, that multi-assailant rape was in my freshman year of college. And it was on a Friday into Saturday, you know, it's like six hours with people. Um, I had finals on Monday. I, this was Friday to Saturday. I had finals on Monday and that, and all week. And I got all A's and B's that, that quarter, even though I had just had that rate that the couple of days before. I mean, it was just, I, I knew how to, um, to put it in a separate box, you know, to put it aside and focus on what I needed to do. It was just a skill that I had learned growing up. And so there was positives to it. And then there were negatives, right? Being able to emotionally disengage allowed me to be somewhat functional at times, but it also meant I wasn't dealing with my pain. I wasn't dealing with my trauma. I wasn't healing emotionally. And mm -hmm. so when I had the next extreme situation of living with the abusive boyfriend, I hadn't repaired the damage from my earlier yeah. years. And so I just turned to the familiar relief, which seemed really great the first you know month or so but quickly turned into its own massive problem once again yeah so your traumas were really just compounding it was just like it's like compound interest they're just building up one one on top of, of the other so what what did it take i mean how long did the drug use go on for and what was what was that moment where you just went i'm not going to do this anymore um, so I, I used for another 10 years. I went into rehab when I was 32 years old. And during that time, I, I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder because <laughs> I couldn't hold a job, right? I mean, I was on yep. drugs. So every job was less responsibility and less money, and I held it for less time. But also by 32, my body was starting to break down. I was having a lot of physical yeah, problems. Yeah. 
I was, you know, emotionally debilitated. I was really feeling hopeless. And my partner was ready to throw me out. And so all of that together is what pushed me to decide, all right, let's give rehab a try. Um, but that doesn't mean that I decided at that moment to stop using. For me and for many people in recovery, that decision is a process. It's not a, a one-time light bulb event. And so for mm -hmm. me, it was a process to get to the point of being committed to sobriety, but also having some hope that it was possible for me, right? Because when I went in, I really didn't think it was. I thought maybe I could figure out how to use less. So there was less chaos mm -hmm. and less misery, but the thought of stopping was sort of beyond my imagination at that point. Well, I mean, I guess you'd spent by then, if you're 32 and you started, I guess, you know, drinking at 12, you'd spent over half of your life in a state of addiction to some kind of substance. So, you know, and we know how our mind likes to hang on to things even when they're bad for us, because it doesn't make a decision. It doesn't have a judgment filter that says good or bad. It just goes, this is what I know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to this, which is why I understand addictions are so hard, um, you know, to tackle. And then, so you, you go to rehab, you know, I want to say, does it work? Like, do you come out? Do you like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fixed in inverted commas. What's the journey after rehab? Because, you know, I hear for so many people that it's, it's harder like when you come out of rehab and you're trying to be sober but you've got to change so much you've got to change your friendship circles and and who you spend your time with so how did how did that go for you after you came out of rehab well i actually had struggles with my recovery before even getting to that point so i went into a long-term women's program inpatient program it was a 90-day minimum commitment although i ended up staying five months but um, I, in my mind, I'm going to, for medical treatment. And this is in 1993. I, got to, I went to rehab in 93. And when I got there, to my great surprise, um, it, I found out that it was a 12-step house. In other words, only um, they told me that the 12-step programs of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous were the only path to recovery. That was the one and only way. And that was a problem. For me, it, it wasn't a problem for many of my the women in my rehab. They were comfortable with it, and I was happy for them. But for me, it wasn't going to work. I was an atheist, and I didn't believe in a higher power. I didn't agree that I was powerless. I didn't really like the focus on defects. You know, there were multiple parts of the program that I was uncomfortable with, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So I'm, I'm paying someone for treatment and they're telling me there's only one way to get well and it's a way that won't work for you, but tough luck, Mary Beth, <laughs> you know, so it was a, it was a problem. Yeah, um, they didn't, yeah. they didn't offer any other options. They didn't offer solutions. They were adamant and vehement. It was the one and only way. So that was a real obstacle to my recovery that I had to find a way around. Mm -hmm. So, so in that, do you, do you fight it or do you just surrender to the process or is there somewhere in between? Was there a version of it that you could do for yourself within the confines of their program to still work your way through this? 
So that's when I had to decide, right? What, what am I going to do about them telling me I have to do something that I cannot do? Um, and it was, in, it, was, it was particularly problematic because I've literally been there for like a day. And I'm also looking at 20 years of poor decision making, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like I'm feeling confident about my own judgment or, yeah. you know, to, to reject what these experts are telling me when I know that my thinking is askew because of my drug use and all of that was, was scary. It was frightening. Um, but what I decided to do was to just do my best to keep my ears and my mind open and listen for the parts of what they were offering that I thought would help me and just ignore everything else. <laughs> and so that's what I did. That's what I did. And I tried hard, like you say, to find the parts that would would help. And I read through all of the AA big book and I read through all of the NA basic text. And also there were classes in rehab, right? Classes about some of the science of substance use disorder, about, you know, how to recognize or handle triggers. And there were some 12 step ideas I could use, not the higher power part, but um, for example, the powerless idea. There's step one is you, that you agreed that you were powerless over your addiction. Well, I, I didn't agree with that, although for, for various reasons, but I thought about it. And what I decided was what I could agree is that I am powerless to moderate. <laughs> like Mary mm-hmm. Beth cannot moderate. Okay. Yeah. And so I did that. I went through all the materials and all the steps and all the um, classes that I had in rehab. And I I used, did my best to use the ideas that I thought would help me stay sober. And that's how I approached it. Okay. And, and I guess that's, that's a little bit about life in, in some ways. We can either choose to completely surrender into whatever the, the doctrine is um, that's coming at us, um, which, you know, today might be what we see on social media you know, which is people telling us how to live our lives. If you do this, you'll be happy. If you wear these clothes, if you have that makeup, if you do that, whatever. Um, So we we all, I guess, get to make a choice. But I I love your point about, you know, your own personal frame of reference about how good you are at judging what's good for you was was a pretty low bar at at that point in time. So, all right. So we spent five months in rehab. That's a really long time. Yes. And I mean, I did feel that I needed it because I, you know, I had a fairly low bottom as, you know, as, as we would say in, in my day, we said I was tore up from the floor up. I mean, I, I was in pretty bad shape when I went to rehab and I had been using for 20 years and I had had a serious problem for most of that time. Um, so at five months I went home and at that point I actually decided to do some research and see whether there were other recovery program options that they just hadn't told me about. And um, by now it's 94, so there's no Google, okay? So, yeah, yeah, that's true. No Google that is. for young people that are listening. So I, I went to the library to do research and see, are there other, um, rec- you know, addiction recovery groups besides 12 steps? And it turns out that there were, they just hadn't told me about them. And they still exist today. In fact, today there are even more choices than there were when I got sober. But I found Women for Sobriety, which was, um, it's the first in America, the first modern secular approach to recovery. And I found SOS, which basically is now LifeRing Secular Recovery. And I'm on the board for LifeRing. And I found Rational Recovery, which is now SMART. And I did the same thing I had done with 12 Steps, which is I read all the materials. I mean, I remember writing, uh, calling 800 numbers and sending self-addressed stamped envelopes to get the written materials. (laughs) Um, Gosh, those days. 
The old days, right? The old days. And I went to all the meetings. And I so I continued to do what I had started, which was just pull ideas that I thought would be helpful to me. And just I sort of synthesized the ideas. But it was a great relief to find that there were other approaches mm. and that these other approaches that were more consistent with my worldview and my philosophical beliefs. So that was like, phew, okay, other people have done it the secular way. And so it means I'm not, you know, creating this new path solely on my own, but I have some examples, which is reassuring. Other people have succeeded, which was reassuring. And I just synthesized it. Today, we would call it a hybrid program or a patchwork Mm -hmm. program, but that Mm -hmm. didn't exist. That terminology didn't exist, but that's what I did. So that must have been very empowering then to be able to know, A, there's more out there that I resonate with more and I can take a bit from here and a bit from here and a bit from here. And it was almost like a, you know, DIY, you know, own recovery (laughs) program that you put together, which clearly worked for you. So where to now? How do we go from I've just come out of recovery to now I'm a judge? Because there's a bit in there that I, I really want to know that bit because that's the turnaround piece, right? Well, and I will say that um, in a way, having to find my own path really did strengthen me and give me skills to handle the rest of my life, right? I mean, in a way, when I was, was sort of doing was like an analysis, you know, who am I? Where am I? Where do I want to go? How do I think I can get there? I was setting goals. I was prioritizing among, because my list of goals when I first got sober was much bigger than I could address in the short term, right? Because I had destroyed Mm -hmm. so much of my life. So I had to learn to prioritize. I had to learn to you know, what step toward the goals can I make today? You know, what are my short-term goals inside of the long-term goals? And I was able to take that same approach and apply it to my professional decisions. But also I had um, some mental health issues because of the PTSD that I didn't realize I had at first, but I had severe anxiety as a result of that PTSD. And I, I had to approach it in the same way by, you know, getting the help that I needed, therapy, I did individual, I did group, a group therapy with women with trauma histories, which was very, very helpful to me. I did meds for a while. Um, and so I had to resolve that. But it was, in a, in a way, what the, the, this, the techniques that I learned in setting my own sober path, I was able to use those, that same approach to these other areas of my life. That's that's super important. So let's just let's just cover that for a bit. So there's a few there's a few bits I just want to unpack in that. So let's talk about, you know, the value that you found in things like group programs and, um, you know, what, what does that involve for those of us that have never been to something like that? You know, we see we see on, you know, on movies and on TV, you know, people rocking off to AA meetings where they sit around in a circle and go, hi, my name is Margaret and I'm a whatever. T- tell us what they're really like. You know, and what's the value of being in a group of like-minded and similar experienced people? So there are different formats in the different programs that I mentioned, um, but there are some similarities. And one of them is that you're really with people that you don't have to explain everything. You can sort of shorthand it and the, uh, the people in the room understand. And that can be really helpful. But I will say, even though I wasn't a 12-step person, Um, Because they told me that's all there was in the beginning, I went to a lot of 12 step meetings. And one of the things that I got out of it that really helped me was hope. Because when in a 12 step meeting, 
someone first shares their story. That's how the meeting starts. And so I would listen to these stories and these um, speakers, some of them would have been in, you know, had a drug history as long and severe as mine. Some of them had destroyed their lives in very similar ways to the ways I had destroyed mine. And now they're in front of me and they have six months sober or a year or two years. They have a job. Maybe they got a promotion. They're paying off their back taxes. They're improving their relationships. They look happy and healthy. And that, as I said, when I walked in the room, it wasn't a light bulb. I'm going to get sober. I can be sober. It was a process for me. And part of that process was seeing examples of people like me who had succeeded. And that helped me have some hope that if they could do it, then maybe I could too. And hope is important because early recovery is hard. And if you have hope, it's a lot easier to do the work and to try to stick, you know, stick to the, um, what you need to do. If you have some belief that you're going to get a good result out of it, that you're going to find your way out of this misery and out of this chaos. Yes. Yes. It's hope is just such an important thing, you know, and it's, it's, if we don't have hope for our future, then there's a part of us that gives up. You know, and it's seeing people who have been where you are and that they've come out the other side and they're living, they're living good lives. It, I can, I can just, and that's why, you know, groups like that are so important. And thank you for sharing that because I really wanted our listeners, if you, you know, whether it is drugs, alcohol, weight, whatever it is, or you know what, you just need someone to talk to, finding a group of people where there are others either currently in the same situation as you but importantly people that you can look to who have been through what you've been through and they're coming they've either come out or they're coming out the other side who can give you that hope that you know they've done it I can do it too they're okay I'm going to be okay like it's such an important thing to do and that feeling that we're not alone I think that's that acceptance piece and that belonging piece um, that I can only imagine, you know, that in those circles with those other people, there's 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 little or no shame in talking about your experiences. Whereas if we were to, you know, we're not going to get together with a group of friends necessarily and be totally open because I imagine there's a lot of shame that comes with what you've experienced and to find a safe place and a, and a judgment-free place would be really important, yeah? It, that's right. I mean, when you're talking with people who aren't, who haven't experienced it, whether it's substance use disorder or, or other you know challenges like that, you don't always know what the reaction will be, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes we're afraid of what the reaction will be because we don't know how um, how empathetic that person might be, how sympathetic that person might be, how able they are to put themselves in your shoes, or how they're going to be judgmental for whatever. Mm-hmm reasons maybe they had a parent or a spouse who had that problem and mistreated them and they they can't they haven't been able to move past that or resolve it and they can put that baggage on you um and so yes when you're in the group of people who have all had this similar experience you know that we understand how you could have done x y or z because you were um doing it to to satisfy your substance use disorder. It's not logical from the outside, but we understand 
how that drives you to do things that you would not otherwise do. But also we understand each other's pain, the misery, the chaos. It's not like people addicted to drugs are out partying and having a good time. It's a miserable existence. And that is a pain that everyone in the group understands. And that can be valuable as well. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned as well, you know, that you learned things such as, you know, how to set goals. It made you really reflect on what do I want in my life? What's important to me in my life? And and that's that I think is so important for people to reflect on whether you're recovering from an addiction of any type. And it's, you know, it's it's the notion of steps um, and working your way through all of that. And it's it's a it's a cornerstone of, of I guess even my coaching for women who've never been through any kind of addiction, which is what do I actually want in my life? What do I not want in my life? What do I want instead? What's important to me? And what what goals and then what steps do I need to take towards achieving those? Now, you know, maybe that for some of us and maybe for you, maybe that that approach of being clear about what I want in my life and feeling as though you deserve it because a lot of that comes from a feeling of self-worth. Do I actually deserve good things in my life? Um, and then how will I actually then go about doing it? So do I have a sense of purpose? So how did you how did you find your purpose? How did you really get to the point of going, I deserve to live an amazing life where I am happy and healthy because I'm worth it. Like, Tell us about that. Well, I, I will use um, the professional side as an example. So w- when I got sober, I mean, I was 32. I had a Berkeley degree, which is a good college in America, very good college, and I had good grades. But I had a very choppy work history because I had, you know, worked my way down that corporate ladder. And so um, I was really afraid and anxious about interviewing, about having to, you know, explain myself, basically. It was really frightening. And I didn't know where professionally I needed to go, but I had to start from where I was. And so my first job when I got home from rehab was a part-time, low-level, temporary admin job because that's all I was ready to handle. Mm -hmm. And so part of it was being patient, not wanting to say, oh, I've got my Berkeley degree, I deserve job X. I had to be realistic and say, this is where you are and this is what you're ready for, do this first (laughs) do this first and so that's what i did and um and then my second job was a like a mid-level full-time administrative job my next job was a supervisory job at a larger company and when i had six years sober i went to law school i went to berkeley law and then i did big law and then i worked for the government doing class actions and then in 2014 i was appointed a judge but that was 20 years i had 20 years sober when i was appointed a judge And it's not that on day one, I said, oh, I'm going to become a judge. It was really about what's my next step? You know, what, Mm -hmm. what do I, what am I going to do for my next step? Okay. Now I've got, I've accomplished this. So where, what's my next, my next right step. But sometimes, sometimes we know the ultimate goal and we work towards it. And sometimes we don't really, um, there's no way to know what 20 years will bring. It's really just about how do I improve from where I am? What's the next improvement in my life that I can work on professionally relationships? Or, I mean, for me, one big challenge was interpersonal skills. I had none. (laughs) I had to work on that. And so it's just, I, I, 
I talk about goals, but I also do like to put a context around it that we don't always know ultimately. And really, is there an ultimately? I mean, I retired as a judge and now I'm an advocate talking about multiple paths to recovery and I wrote a book. And so in some ways, there is no end point to this. It's really just about what's next and how do I work toward the next step that I want. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about that if we can, that we grow up in a society um, you know, at our generation and, and the younger ones as well, where you you are encouraged to have these big goals, you know, dream big and, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, we start saying that to our kids from such a young age, which which has got some merit, but also a huge amount of pressure. You know, I've got teenage, older teenage children and, and I've watched them and I've watched the the children of my friends, particularly in their high school years, struggle with this pressure of making a decision about what I want to do for the rest of my life versus, you know what, can I just decide what I want to do next month? Like, you know, and I, I take the approach with my kids, you know what, decide what you want to do now that, that makes you happy for now. And we don't focus on long-term things. So I love your approach of like, you know, what can I handle now? But that's that's kind of contrary to, as I say, you know, what we are taught and what we are told is the right way of thinking people will be like what's your five-year plan what's your 10-year plan and I'm kind of like I've got this week's plan like you know (laughs) I know the kind of life I want to live and I know the kind of person I want to be but exactly what that might look like in terms of what job will it be where will I be in five years time how much money am I going to be earning what title will I have that's so how how did you you know, how, how, what advice would you give to others who want to get off being so hung up on having such a fixed mindset about who I have to be and what I have to do and there's a path and there's a timeline and there's, this equals success. And, you know, there's an expression that um, a coach that I had for, for, for um, a while and she was amazing, she would have this expression to me, which is walk where your feet are. And I didn't know what that meant for a while because I'm like, and, and of course I'm walking where my feet are. Duh, like. But is that really about saying just like be where you are right now, see what you can learn from it and then think what next when you're really comfortable where you're at? What does, how, how do we explain that to people? I mean, it's an interesting point and, you know, because there is a balance between you want to have goals and you want to be working forward, of course, not just professionally, but in many other mm-hmm. areas of your life that ultimately really are more important as far as your life satisfaction goes and your happiness goes. Yep. But you don't want to look so far ahead that you can't enjoy the now. But the other thing I think about when you ask that is that the reality is that when I, if I was, let's say, 25 years old, um, and I beyond three or four or five years, I'm not sure how you know who, who you're going to mm-hmm. be in three yes. or four or five years. So how do you know what, what that woman is going to want? Right? She may want something different than you think she's going to want. So it's, it's good to have the goals and work to the next step, but you have to have a certain flexibility and, and staying in touch with who you are and what you want. Sometimes when we get the job we think we want, we get in there and we realize it's actually not as satisfying as we thought mm-hmm. it was going to be. And then you really, it's important to figure out why, because to make the right next step, you really have to understand what about my current situation? Do I like, what about it is not giving me satisfaction? 
what do what do I want that I don't have, um, and mm. all of that kind of analysis to know what the next step might be. Um, it sort of reminds me when I went to law school. How do you know when you're in law school what it's like to be a lawyer on a day to day basis? You do not know. You're guessing. This looks like a career that would fit my personality, my intellectual interests, and all of that. But until we do a job, we don't really know what it's like on a regular basis. So. There is that flexibility that I think we need to have at all times mm-hmm. and, and staying in touch with our own growth. You know, the other thing I think about with that, too, is that when I when I got out of law school, I worked at a big law firm. It's like a top tier job, you know, in the legal profession. And I did that for a couple of years. And I mean, the hours were insane. They paid me a lot of money, but they sort of owned me. And I mean, yeah. my phone would ring on the beach. I, I canceled more theater tickets, you know, than you can imagine because work, it was all work. And so I really had to stand back and say, okay, I thought I wanted this level of prestige and money, but I'm living it now and I'm not happy. It wasn't the job. Yes. They were The job was what it was supposed to be but I didn't want it anymore. And so I walked away from it. And so it's important to keep that connection and that ongoing analysis about where am I and is this really making me happy? And how does that inform what my right next step should be? I I love that so much. I'm just, I'm having a little goosebumps moments as you're saying that and nodding away because, you know, I, I did similar, um, you know, and, had the job that I thought I'd always wanted, the job that, you know, I, I had I timelined, I'd be doing this by this age and this, and I wanted to earn this and have this title. And, and then I had it all. And, you know, it was, it was, it felt like they owned my soul, um, you know, and similar, like there was the hours were crazy. You didn't feel like you had a life of your own. Um, yet I had everything I thought I'd ever wanted, but I'd never been more sick and more miserable and unhappy and purposeless in my entire life and it was you know mine wasn't the addiction mine mine was burnout and and ending up in hospital and becoming very ill from from the burnout that made me go I don't want to do that anymore I don't know what I want to do I just know it's not that anymore so the process of figuring out I have no idea what I want to do but I know who I want to be and quitting my job and walking away from it almost this time last year um, and and coming and doing this, which, you know, is going to earn me 10% of what I earned last year. But I tell you what, I'm freaking happy. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm being myself every day. I think this is the thing for, for, for so many women and so many women that I talk to and I work with that, you know, almost from the time we're little girls, there is a pathway that gets set out for us. You know, less so now for our, for our younger generations, but that you will go to school, you'll go to college, you'll go to university, you'll get a degree, you'll get a job, you'll get married or have a partner, then you'll probably have babies um, and you'll, you'll keep on working and you'll get a bigger job that earns more money and you'll, you know, you just accumulate more stuff and you get a bigger job so that you can earn more money and have more stuff and go on fancy holidays and have a bigger house. And we just rinse and repeat that cycle and then we retire and then our kids have left home, you know, maybe our marriage or our relationship is still okay and maybe it's gone as well and suddenly there's no job and the kids are gone and don't need us for much anymore and maybe we're on our own or we might still be with our partner and we're not even sure who they are because they've been doing the same thing we've been doing. And we get to this point in our lives where we go, I don't even know who I am 
I don't know what makes me happy, but I followed the path and I ticked all the boxes. <laughs> Instead of at some point, and whether it is a, a trauma or, you know, something momentously life-changing like what you've been through to stop and go, actually, I'm doing, I'm following that pathway and I'm ticking those boxes and I'm empty inside. Because the kind of life that this is letting me live, although I might have a lovely wardrobe full of shoes, because the paycheck's nice, like, you know, at my funeral, I used to think to myself, if people would come to my funeral, A, who's coming to my funeral? And of those that would come to my funeral, what will they say? No one's coming to my funeral and going, oh my God, Margaret had the best shoe collection. <laughs> or Margaret had the nicest earrings. Or she drove a nice car. That's not what they're saying. That's, well, it's not what I wanted them to say. So it was sort of like, well, how do I be the kind of person that when people come to my funeral, they're going to say the things about me, that that's the legacy, that's how I want to be remembered, that's the impact I want to have on the world. And I'm not going to have that impact doing what I'm doing. I'm not going to be this present for my kids as I wish I could be. I won't be a good friend. I won't be the kind of friend I want to be. I won't be the kind of partner I want to be if I do that. So how do I create a life that lets me be who I want to be? So I think it's when we change the narrative from what do you want to do to who do you want to be? How can you live a life that lets you be you instead of how do you live a life where you do what you need to do? So as somebody who's eventually kind of gone and done her own path, how, how does that land for you? Where's, where's, where's your view on that? I mean, it's a very good point because I, I say that, you know, the, the, the junkie to judge, right? The judge job gets attention. How did I achieve that? It's a sign mm -hmm. of achievement. But, but, yes. but what I talk about with people in recovery is that is not by any means the most important part of my recovery or of my achievements. That was my job. You know, what, what the, the glories of my life, the most um, fulfilling and satisfying and nurturing parts of my lives. And, and the parts that I feel good about is that I am now able to be a good friend and a good sister and a good partner. And I can contribute back to my community and be of service in part by being open about my recovery. Yes. And all of those things are much more important than the professional accomplishment. That's what keeps me nurtured. That is, is more important for my happiness. It's a more accurate barometer of my success in my overall life than how much my paycheck was or what my job title was. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's critically important. And the only other thought I have to say to any young women that are listening, one thing to be cautious of is what we call in America golden handcuffs, right? That it's important not to let your debt and your expenditures get to the point that you have no choice but to stay in that job. Don't get trapped like that. That is a, an emotionally harmful path that can lead to a lot of health issues like you described from working too much and also losing connection with your friends and your family and with yourself because you're on that, you're running on that treadmill. It's important to, even if you choose to do it for a while, don't let yourself get in a financial position that you're trapped and you can't get out. 
Yeah, that's it's so important. And I was um, speaking with somebody only earlier this week and her reality is, and it's a reality for so many people, that the size of my mortgage, you know, if you want to live in one of the capital cities in Australia, particularly Sydney or Melbourne, you're going to have a massive mortgage. Your debt is going to be anywhere from half a million to to 1.5 million for an ordinary that's not big dollar as an ordinary australian is going to have i think the average australian mortgage at the moment is something like over eight hundred thousand dollars now the repayments on that are huge absolutely huge and you know i was chatting with this woman earlier this week who was sort of like my job is not fulfilling me it's not what i want i don't know what i want to do but i know it's not this but I have to earn this level of income in order to pay my mortgage and keep my kids at this school and not even live a fancy life, but that's just basically the necessities of, of, of life. So it can be really easy, you know, because it's almost like, how do we do that? Because we can't all just pack up and move and live in rural Australia where, where you know, housing is, is, is cheaper. For some people, that's not what they want to do or they want to stay close to family and live where they are. But it is certainly in your younger days, um, you know, don't rack up a credit card debt. Stay at home with mum and dad for as long as you can if that's an option that you have, um, you know, to, to do the savings that you've got. But I guess it's also about living within your means. Um, you know, as somebody who has in the past, thanks to two divorces, been through quite a, quite a degree of financial stress that has taken me each time I've been divorced it's taken me five years to get my finances back to a position where I'm not lying awake at night stressing or I'm not answering not answering that call on my phone because I know it's a debt collector. You know, um, we don't want to live in that position because that the stress that that does um, is, is really damaging. And when you're in that, that money worry I do a lot of coaching around like money mindset and financial abundance and people's relationship with money. And when you're in that fear phase with money, it, it only it only gets worse. You can't create abundance when you're in that scarcity or, or that or that fear state. But for so many, it's it's hard to find that balance. And again, I see young people, you know, young couples, late twenties, early thirties, getting married, starting their families. And going into this massive amount of debt really early days. And, and I worry for them. Um, I really do worry for them. So it's really, really important advice, but also really hard to, to juggle of how do, how, do I, how do I have it all? Because aren't we taught that we can have it all? But life is choices, right? And, and I, mm-hmm. I do also feel like I should caveat that with there are many people. I mean, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, also a very, very expensive mm-hmm. part of the country. Uh, the world. And I mean, there are people here who have no ability to save. They're not overspending. They're, they're spending to survive and there's almost Mm. nothing left. And that's a very challenging situation as well, which you have even less control of, but to the, to the extent you do have control, it is important to think about your long term and what your options are. But yeah, we, and it's not, 
it's not the, the valid uh, expenditures. It's when we do start spending on the shoes, the shoes, or we get caught up, we get caught up in the, you know, the Instagram, you know, TikTok, gotta look good on Facebook, fancy mm-hmm. vacations that I don't absolutely need. So there's, there's expenditures, even a house in a nice neighborhood, if you can afford it, that can be a, a valid choice. But are you being as cautious with the rest of your money as you can, mm. or is it sort of just spiraling out of control? And those are two very different things. Yeah, but yes, absolutely. It's, it's challenging for all of us. Um, money and balancing work and family, it's just very, it's all very challenging. But the, I think what's important is that you, that you check in with yourself on a regular basis and make sure that you are either where you want to be, or at least that you're um, making an honest analysis about what you're happy with and what you're not. And then if there are the parts that you aren't happy with that you think about, what can I actually improve? You know, what are my next steps toward improving that part? None of us can flick a light switch and, you know, fix everything all in one step. Sometimes you have to stay at the job another two years for financial reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Well, then suck it up and stay at the job for another two years, but have an exit plan for later when you're able to do it. Absolutely. And I I think one of the things is that, you know, I say to women all the time, you know, I know I was in the fortunate position to be able to go, you know, I'm quitting my job, quitting my job, walking away from it, I'm going to set up my own business. I'm going to do what makes me happy. You know, because I didn't have, I didn't have, um, you know, uh, a partner to consult, you know, you know, independent woman, I can go, hey, I'm going to do, I ran it past my partner, but it's, it's, you know, he has his house, I have my house, but, you know, it was sort of like, hi, I'm just kind of running this past you because I'm thinking I'm going to quit my job tomorrow and it might have this little impact on us and I just want to make sure you're okay with that. You know, I didn't want to go, hey, guess what, I quit my job today, honey, Um, (laughs) you know, but I didn't need anybody's permission to do that, I guess, is the point. You know, um, I had savings in the bank, um, you know, because I'd, I'd been in, in, in a role that, that paid well and I'd been able to save. So I could go, I've got X amount of months worth of money to live on. Um, I don't need anybody's permission to be able to do it. I'm just going to go and do it. Now, I know that's not the reality for everybody. But I guess the thing also is how do we be in a set of circumstances that are not necessarily the ideal one. Like if we could wave a magic wand and, and create our own ideal life, it might not be what we're living right now. So I'm in a set of circumstances that not are not my ideal set of circumstances, but I'm going to choose to be happy anyway. I think that's that's where the magic happens, which says it's not about the job I'm in or the house I live in or the things I've got. I am a happy person. You know, I sometimes say to women, finish this sentence for me. So if you're listening at home, let's just try and finish this sentence. I'll be happy when. And I get, I'll be happy when I get a new job. I'll be happy when, you know, that thing with my kid sorts itself out at school. I'll be happy when, um, you know, my divorce gets finalized. I'll be happy. And they give me this list of when they'll be happy. And I'm like, well, when will that be? Oh, well, I don't know. Okay, so let me hit, let me replay what you've just said to me. You've no idea how long it's going to be until you're happy again. And you are giving away your happiness to a set of circumstances and or person that's outside of your control. And you're okay with that. And so like, well, no. I'm like, well, that's what you just said. So what if instead 
I'll be happy now. I will choose to be happy. I get to be happy. I have a shitty set of circumstances that I wish were different. But I'm going to be happy on the inside, irrespective of what is happening on the outside. Because then if you do have to stay in that job for two more years. You know, I stayed in my job for, and there were times I loved my job. A little bit like you, I loved it. It was killing me, but there were so many times that I loved it. But honestly, the one thing that kept me going was I knew that I had a financial payoff that was going to come to me at a certain point in time. I didn't know when it required, you know, a portion of the company to be sold so that I could cash out my share options. Because otherwise, if I left before that happened, those years of work and those long nights and not time spending time with my children and my friends and whatever, that would have all been for nothing if I'd left. But I didn't know when that was going to be. But I kept hanging on though and saying I was that person said, I'll be happy when they sell that part of the company and I get my shares. And until then, I'm going to be miserable (laughs) was the choice that I made. So I know what it feels like to live in that space where you feel like you are trapped and you are stuck and you've got no choice and you're a victim of your own set of circumstances. But to instead be able to go, you know what, this is a shitty set of circumstances and I cannot change it tomorrow and I so wish I could. But you know what, I'm going to choose happy and I'm going to choose myself so that when that set of circumstances aligns, oh my God, I'm ready. I'm ready to go and I'm going to make great choices. And who knows along the way, if I've got this mindset of, of happiness and abundance, what I thought I wanted might actually not be what it turns out I want. That's what I want while I'm in this mindset of scarcity and fear. If I get into a mindset of possibility and get in alignment with myself because I actually know what's important to me, you know what? I might want something completely different and that's okay too. We're allowed to change our mind, ladies. We're allowed <laughs> to change our minds. It's okay. So that's, you know, I guess... That's the message and and so much of what you're talking about there as well is it's all good to have a goal, but just take it one step at a time and figure out what's going to make you happy and live in alignment with that. So tell us about the work you're doing now. So you've got a book um, that you've written and you're doing some work in your community now. So tell us about that, Mary Beth. So yes, in my memoir, and it is available on, even in Australia, you can, I think, at least get the electronic version. It's From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And I've had like op-eds out. I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called I Beat Addiction Without God. I do presentations at conferences like the She Is Me conference, and I do a podcast. um, And I'm also on the board for Life Ring Secular Recovery and for She Recovers Foundation. So I, I... basically decided to be open about my recovery and, you know, talk out loud about my journey from IV meth addict, you know, to judge, uh, to help get attention to the idea of multiple paths to recovery, but also as sort of a, a symbol of this is what recovery can look like, right? That you're sober and out of that chaos and misery, your life can be amazing in all kinds of ways that you can't anticipate when you enter recovery and, um, and to 
to also discuss that trauma substance use disorder connection, which I think people aren't as aware of as they should be. The percentage of people with a substance use disorder who have trauma histories is very, Mm -hmm. very high. And part of it is, especially in America, lack of access to mental health care to deal with the initial trauma and that kind of thing. So I try to advocate about all of these issues to help women find a path forward, to help reassure them that there is a path forward and to um, do what I can to, to improve my community in that way. I love that. And I love it's so important that you are doing this work and having a voice for those that haven't found theirs yet or maybe will never find theirs. But, you know, I know that they would be so grateful to you for sharing your story and doing the work that you're doing. So, Mary Beth, we will pop up uh, on the show notes um, all of the links that we have for you on your socials um, and where folks can find your book. And even if it's for us here in Australia, if we can only get it um, on the electronic version, I'm sure we can find some way of getting it um on Amazon from from the US. We will pop all of those details into the show notes. Mary Beth O'Connor, thank you so much for being you. Thank you for being with us in this space and sharing your story. And um, I just, I wish you continued success and please keep touching lives and changing lives. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience and it's been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Living the Queen Life podcast. You can join in on the conversation at Queen of My Own Universe on Facebook, Queen of My Own Universe 1 on Instagram, or visit the website at www.queenofmyownuniverse.com. Please join me again soon. And in the meantime, keep on living your best queen life.